Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandri and Boonarong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, Ella. And good morning, listeners. It's 3CR Wednesday breakfast, 18th of May. And yeah, you're in the studio with Claudia and Ella. We've let Jacob have a well-deserved week off uh, this week, but we'll be back with them next week. Uh, in the meantime, you're stuck with the two of us. Yeah, <laughs> and it's three more sleeps <laughs> until the big election. Yeah, yeah. Are you all ready for Saturday, Ella? Um, I think so. <laughs> I'm going to, yeah, go out to the um, polls on the day. I'm not organised enough to do an early election, but I'm kind of looking forward to it. I actually um, yeah, haven't voted in a federal election before because I've lived overseas in the past and haven't been here. So ah. I'm looking forward to the whole experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, prepare for the queues. <laughs> Yes, so I hear. <laughs> and are you in a marginal seat or a safe seat? Uh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, you better do your research. Yeah, I've got to do my research for my seat. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in fun. a seat that normally is a safe Labour seat, McNamara, um, but apparently this year uh, the Greens are very close. So, yeah, there's normally a 3% margin, which I guess isn't super safe um yeah. but um yeah i think they're pretty neck and neck this year so it'll be interesting to see what happens i went to a asylum seeker resource center uh, forum on sunday which uh was wanting to hear about election promises and policies relating uh to refugee uh, issues and uh, both the greens candidate and the labor sitting MP were there along with the United Australia Party representative. But oh, uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, and no representation from the coalition or Liberal Party. Um, yeah, yeah, I did see the event advertised and I was wondering um, which Yeah, it was really it's... excellent and it was really great to hear the, the speakers, the candidates in person. I haven't actually personally done that before. I've sort of received all my... Uh, input from news outlets and yeah yeah, it's great to have a a sort of in-person experience and um, also to hear their policies and be yeah sitting watching my seat on Saturday and see which way it swings. And what was the um, audience like at the event? Was it mostly people who were uh, with lived experience, yeah, and people who were um, supportive of asylum seekers and yeah, refugees. Definitely. And, yeah, yeah um, um, there wasn't any questions that um, were uh, yeah presented against against the asylum seeker case. There were people with lived experience, uh, and also um, yeah, people who were very engaged in the detail of 
what happens um, on Nauru and the just the, all the different aspects of asylum seekers' experience, um, visas and so forth. So, yeah, really engaged audience, uh, wide range of ages and, um, yeah, a really good event. Excellent. So... Onto the show. Onto the show. <laughs> what have we got in store for us this morning? Yeah, so your first cab off the rank this morning, Claudia, at uh, 7.10. Yeah, so the first segment we have this morning is an interview with Linda Fisk from the Seeds of Affinity Pathways for Women organisation. Uh, and it's a, an organisation which supports criminalised women in South Australia entering community. So Linda's going to be talking about what happens when women leave prison, the barriers they face and new technology that's being developed to help. And that'll be followed with a conversation I'll be having with Theo Boltman, a teenage trans person who's campaigning for the Greens in McNamara actually uh, in this election. So yeah, we'll be chatting to Theo to hear their perspective on what uh, issues are important to them as a young person and also um, as a young trans person attending a religious school in Melbourne. Excellent. And, um, yeah, at 7.50, I'm going to be speaking with playwright uh, Fiona Spitskowski about her new production, The View from Up Here. Um, And, yeah, this is a performance which looks at the lived realities of a world affected by climate change and global warming. Um, and yeah, it follows the story of one family. Um, it looks really exciting and I believe you and I are going to see it tomorrow night so we'll have to report back next week. Yeah, looking forward to that. Um, yeah, me too. And yeah, in the min- meantime, we'll uh, hear from Claudia, uh, not Claudia, Fiona. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dealing um, with catastrophe and um, how we deal with it. Yeah, and yeah, there's been a fair bit of that over the past few years and I believe it was five years in the making this place. It'll be interesting to hear how bushfires and the pandemic have affected the process. Interesting to see the arts sort of filling that gap, that void that has been left open by sort of lack of, you know, political action and policy in in that area as well. So, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how they work the material. (laughs) Definitely. Um, And then we're going to finish up the show with a segment from Lost in Science Um, So Chris spoke to animal reproductive biologist Jared McKenna um, about some newly funded research that plans to bring the Tasmanian tiger back from extinction and to the wilds of Tasmania, Mm. um, which is a really interesting lesson, as they point out, very uh, Jurassic Park-esque. Yeah, um, I think I've um, heard something about that, um, yeah, on the, um, the news a while ago. So it's a really interesting, yeah, really interesting subject. Yeah, Look forward to that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it can be stranger than fiction sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, in the meantime, I might get us started off with a song. Uh, this is Little Sunflower from Dorothy Ashby.
You're listening to 3CR's Wednesday Breakfast on 855am. Thanks, Ella. And uh, now we're going to go to our first segment, which is about women leaving prison. So leaving prison might be a turning point for some, but for many, it is an incredibly fraught experience. Isolation, poor health, material deprivation and finding housing are just some of the tough challenges. But imagine trying to make a new start without basic documentation, such as an official ID. We're going to speak to a woman who is striving to change the situation through a technical support tool designed with and for women transitioning from prison to community. Linda Fisk is a woman with lived experience of prison. She's the co-founder of a grassroots not-for-profit organisation called Seeds of Affinity, Pathways for Women, which supports criminalised women in South Australia. She is a member of the National Network for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. In 2018, Linda graduated from the University of South Australia with a degree in psychological science. I spoke with her last week to find out about the barriers facing women leaving prison and the new technology SEEDS is developing to support the transition to society. We ended up chatting for quite a while, so we're going to play this conversation in two segments. So today in part one, we'll hear the challenges women leaving prison face when starting a new life, including the problem of having to secure ID papers. Then next week in part two, we'll learn about LindaBot, the exciting new technological support being developed to help with these very issues. So let's dive in now. And before I ask Linda about the experience of women leaving prison, I wanted to get some background on the organisation Seeds of Affinity, Pathways for Women. Now, Linda, can we start with you and your story? You founded Seeds of Affinity back in 2006. Would you like to share a little bit about how the organisation began and what the drivers were setting it up? Uh, Sure, Claudia, I can do that. And I could do that with my eyes closed, I think. (laughs) So um, I'm an uh, ex-prisoner and myself and my um, old parole officer uh, are co-founders of the organisation. Back in 2006, um, what we were seeing was many women cycling in and out of the prison system and not really remaining in the community for very long. Uh, Most of the support organisations and the the state-run support organisations had really been set up for men and they really didn't fit us. Um, and it troubled troubled me and it troubled Anna, who was my old parole officer, and we would quite often spend hours and hours talking on the phone on how we could help and what we could do to change things for women in the criminal justice system in South Australia. Um, Anna, was, Anna has worked for the Department of Correctional Services, I think now for 43 or 42 years, Um, At that time, she was really struggling with continuing to work for corrections because she felt she couldn't really impact uh, women's lives at all. Um, So she went away and she learned how to, she took four weeks off work and was going to decide whether she was going to continue with corrections or not. And she went away and learned how to make soaps and toiletries and moisturisers and all that sort of thing. Anyway, when she came back, she rang me up and she said, we're going to have a a lunch and you're going to cook and we're going to have some of my women clients and we're going to see where it goes. So that's really how it started. Um, And what we saw was that the women really, really enjoyed it. And um, 
got a lot out of it as far as um, I have a lot of knowledge even back then about systems and especially the criminal justice system. Um, I spent most of the 80s and the 90s in that system. So I knew how to navigate that very well. I knew how to navigate my way out of it because um, I had many goes at it, let's put it that way. Um, so we began in a very small way in doing that and we saw that women really benefited and the women really wanted to make something out of it. So then we um, set together creating a non-for-profit organisation, um, which is a lot of work, I learned. And we were incorporated in 2011 and um, it's now 2022 and we're still going. Don't get a lot of funding. We basically, from 2006, we really um, survived on selling soap, much like the suffragettes did um, over 150 years ago. Um, so we meet on a Tuesday and a Friday and, the, and we have a shared lunch um, and that's when the women will um, learn to make the soaps and the moisturisers and things. And we share our knowledge, uh, we share our experience and we what we've ultimately done, I think, in the way I look at it, is that we've created a community. So a lot of the women that have been in prison for a significant period of time, whether it's one shot in prison or whether it's many stints in prison over that, that period, usually have burnt their family connections, they've burnt their community connections, and they, they don't feel that they belong anywhere out here anymore. And sometimes what I see with seeds is, you know, a woman might come for, you know, six months, 12 months, maybe 18 months, and then she gains her confidence back and her self-belief and then things will spread out into more the mainstream community. And then we have other cohorts of women that have been with us since 2006. One was here this morning. And, you know, they'll probably always be with us, uh, women with complex needs that really don't fit in mainstream community centres or mainstream support systems. So, I mean, that, that's a real shortcut, I think. Um, it's a much more complex story than that, but that's in, that, that's in a nutshell. And Seeds was really born out of, necessity and a feeling that we were invisible and that we had no sort of platform for us to regain regain our footing and regain our dignity in a way mm. as well I think you know and um, when you come out of prison you're very 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 meek and mild and you people in the community don't think that about us they have different ideas about us but we're actually very very um, insecure in ourselves and we don't have a lot of self-belief you've been treated as a subhuman for however long you've been in prison and once you come out into the community you feel that everybody knows that you've been in prison so to have a group of women surrounding you that support you regardless of your prison experience what what you your offense to women at seas is irrelevant um and i think that that in itself get, gives women great a great sense of self-esteem and a great sense of belonging and i think that's the, the magic and the key in seeds of affinity it sounds like a really safe, safe place. Well, we try to make it a very safe place, yeah. Yeah, place, <laughs> place of trust and care. Yeah, um, and a place where the, women, where the women direct things. So the women have spent their lives being directed, mm. you know, by one officer or one system or, or one, um, you know, government department or another. They've been told their whole lives what they should be doing. Uh, we try to do the opposite and we try to, follow their lead and like the app that we're going to talk about later that app has been being developed with from consultation with the women it's what the women want 
It's not what wider community thinks should happen. It's not what government should think should happen. It's the women that are advising the creators of the app on what should happen. And that's, you know, that's that's um, pretty empowering for women. Absolutely. Well, we'll come to um, hear more about that process that you've described um, in a bit more detail. But um, first, I just wanted to go back to something you said at the outset, which was the, the systems in place for people leaving prison, entering society and community again, were designed with men in mind, and therefore women were being left behind. Can you share what that system looks like? Why it's designed for men? What are the needs of women or the obstacles that they're facing that weren't catered for in the system? Um, just so we can understand where that gap was or is. Yeah, so if we think about prison in the first place, it was created by, by men, for men. Women are really an afterthought. And, and we, we, we feel that immediately when we go to prison. So usually when you go to prison and you're a woman, most things are too big for you. Um, the shoes don't fit you because they've been made for men. The clothes don't fit you. Um, the, the prisons themselves don't fit us. So if you go into the Adelaide Women's Prison today, and there's been a lot of money spent on um, the prison being expanded. There's fitness gear that's been put into that prison that is too big for the women. So the women don't fit into it. So everything has been designed with men in mind and we're an afterthought. Um, so even the thing is like bras. So a, prison, a women's prison needs bras, right? So it's taken many, many years for the women's prison to have bras that actually fit women. So it's taken them a long time to get their head around that. In the in the 90s and in the early 2000s when women were getting out of prison, so as I said before, before we went on air, I said to you there's many different levels of people getting out of prison. So in South Australia, if you um, need bail, for instance, so if you, if you get charged with an offence, you're remanded in custody, you go to prison, and then you might go back to court and you might apply, apply for bail. If you're a man, you can apply for bail and go to the bail hostel, which is in the Arches in Port Adelaide. Well, the women have, can't, can't use that facility. It's for men only. So women at the moment have no option for bail in South Australia unless they have a family member that they can go to. So the, the share houses in South Australia as well, usually run by alls, they're all men's houses. They're not women's houses. So that's, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about that women felt that things just didn't fit them. And when, when you go to some of the services, and I'm not going to mention organisations' names, but they just don't take into account that women are different. Women's experience in the criminal justice system is different. We, we function differently. So when we serve prison time, we do that time completely different to the way that men do time. And that is really the essence, I believe, as to why we're treated so very differently. So men tend to, men, men, are, men are low need prisoners, but they're high risk. Women are high need, but we're low risk. So there's, there's a lot of differences. So a woman in prison, if she wants something, she's, she needs an envelope for her letter that she's gonna send to her child. She's gonna nag for that envelope and she's gonna keep asking that officer for that envelope, like a dripping tap, she's gonna keep asking. Where a man needs something, men don't get it, the men will externalise. They will, they will actually 
do something about it if they don't get what they need from the system, where the women are differently. And the women have been treated differently in this state, I believe, for since the beginning of time, prisons in this state. So is what you're saying that a more aggressive approach um, in terms of demanding things that you need is actually rewarded by a response? Well, just not so much aggressive, you're just not putting up with shit, mm. if I can put it like that. So the women tend to be more submissive so um, um, and are treated that way in prison. So if you think about the women that we have in prison, who's in prison? Women that have been victims of sexual, sexual violence, women that have been victims of domestic violence, women that have been suffered trauma all their life. You can look at the prison cohort and I would say 97% of those women in that prison would have suffered some trauma or other. Some of those women have suffered nothing but trauma continually all of their lives. So they're not going to stand up to mm. men and men and women, but there's more men there now, in uniform, telling them they need to do this and they need to do that. It's, it's a very, very difficult position for those women to be in. It's, it's quite, it's really re-traumatising them. And to expect them to act like men in a prison system is just, it's, it's nonsense. It's not going to happen. So you come out and you've got less of a voice than when you went in. Absolutely. And, and what, what is confronting you then? Um, so when you're coming out, um, you've got massive things that you need to do. Um, you need to get a roof over your head. Most women are caregivers. So most women are the, are the caregivers of a family and of children. So a lot of those women are single parents. So when they go to prison, a lot of those children go into care. So most women, the first thing when they get out, what's the thing that they want to do? Even before they put a roof over their head, they want their children back. Absolutely. Now, that's not an easy task. And to get your children back, it's sort you of need like the the roof. you need the roof over your head mm. and you need a job and you need this and you need that. So you've, got, you've also got usually parole conditions. You've got Centrelink to deal with on, on, on your way out. Some women come out without knowing how to use a computer or a mobile phone. So you walk into Centrelink and you'll be told to go and get on the computer and apply for your benefit, but you don't know how to use it. So there's constantly barrier after barrier after barrier after barrier with nobody willing to sit down with you and understand your experience and to understand that you do have things to offer, but you need support and you need access to resources. You can't do anything without access to resources. And most women find it so daunting that sometimes, and especially women that have had addiction issues, um, they will resort to old things so if you if you don't can't find something new you have no choice but to revert to what you used to do and who you used to be although you're being told by the system you need to get out you need to start a new life and you need to find new friends that's not easy that's you know no. they say it like it's just you know i'll turn left down this street and that that's all going to happen for you that's that's not easy and it's about creating a whole identity for yourself and then if you're dealing with Department of Child Protection, trying to get your children back as well, that, that's another daunting pro process that women need support for. And they need support that's non-judgmental. They need people that are willing to walk alongside them without judging them for who they are, where they've been. 
And is any of this preparation happening before departure? Is there any of this that's dealt with in order to make the process less traumatic or less difficult to navigate once the person's on their own? In very few cases, very few cases. You know, the department tends to cherry pick certain certain women that they might make their um, trophies or, you know, that they might think that they might do extra things for. But as a rule, no, those things are not dealt with. The, the department does not see their role as, as that. Mm. Department, the department is about containment. It's not about what happens afterward. That's, per, that's personal responsibility as far as the department's concerned. It, it's very difficult. Most parole officers have like 70, 80 cases on their caseload. How do, you, how do you give 70, 80 people practical support on a weekly basis? So it's really up to the individual to find that support. So we'll come to the, the crux of um, the interview, which is a new piece of technology that you've developed in order to assist women leaving prison with one particular issue they face which really cuts through all of this because you need identification to front up to Centrelink, to open a bank account, to identify yourself going into the world. And that is a piece of documentation that a lot of women don't have coming out of prison. Um, Can you tell us why they don't have that documentation and what that then means for the reality of what they face. So if you're if you're if I was arrested today and I'm arrested on the street, uh, my identification in most cases, my birth certificate and all those sorts of things are going to be in my home. So I'm going to be arrested, I'm take to court, and then I'm going to be sent to prison. So my belongings are going to be in my home. So if I don't get out quickly enough, my landlord or whoever owns the house is going to come along and re-rent that house to somebody else so all those belongings are going to be removed and taken away to the dump or whatever so I'm going to lose what identification that I do have unless I'm lucky enough to be someone that has a license and I have that license in my wallet that goes to prison with me most of our women don't have licenses so that that's for us is you know it's a very small percentage of people um so upon release, it's really a matter of going and getting everything again. And you need to start with a birth certificate. To have a birth certificate, get a birth certificate, you need the money to get the birth certificate. But to get the money, you need to be able to get your Centrelink. But to get Centrelink, you have to have a birth certificate. It's a bit, it's a bit really like a comedy skit. You know, you could do a comedy skit about it. Like you go to Centrelink and they say, oh, go and get your birth certificate. And you go to birth, death, and marriage, and they say, oh, we'll have to go to Centrelink and get your money so you can pay for it. So you're on this merry-go-round, um, this very cruel merry-go-round that doesn't really give you any assistance. And um, we'd like to find a way to assist women in being able to cut through all that nonsense because it's th- little things like that that seems little to us, but believe you me, to a woman that's just got out of prison that can't get paid because she hasn't got identification or she can't get a bank account, um, it's a massive thing. And a lot of women just throw their hands up in the air and go and steal themselves something to eat instead and end up back in prison. So it's a really, really important issue. So that was Linda Fisk, 
co-founder of Seeds of Affinity Pathways for Women, a South Australian not-for-profit organisation supporting women exiting prison. We're going to leave the conversation there for this week, but please tune in next week um, to hear about the new technology named after Linda, which is designed to assist these women reintegrate in the community. And uh, we'll be hearing about that next week. Uh, Now, if you'd like to find out more or donate to Seeds of Affinity to help with projects like this, head to their website, seedsofaffinity, all one word, dot org. And you can also contact the Melbourne organisation Flat Out, which also assists women who have had contact with the criminal justice system at www.flatout.org.au. And for any women, non-binary and gender diverse people who need help in these areas, you can also contact The Wire, the Women's Information and Referral Exchange, with a phone support uh, service on 1300 134 130 and, of course, Lifeline 131114. So we're going to take a short break now for a community announcement and then we'll be back uh, to speak with Theo Boltman. Do you love Channel 31? Do you have a favourite programme you just can't miss? Or even a favourite Channel 31 personality? If you love your local community TV station, well, there is a way you can help. Head along to c31.org.au and click the big old donate button. Your contribution to your local station will help to keep us on the air. Making more of the quality TV you know and love. Plus, you'll help to make sure our team can continue to provide access, training and education behind the scenes to hundreds of young Victorians. That's c31.org.au. And click on the big donate button. Thank you. A 3CR supporter. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the books and boots bin books and boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional first nations communities and children across the country contact us at books and boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book Theo Boltman is a 16-year-old transgender non-binary writer, activist, performer and high school student. They are deeply passionate about transgender activism and have written about these trans and Jewish identities in The Age. Theo's other passions include climate change, their Year 11 literature class and the Academy Awards. They also volunteer with the Greens Party in the current election campaign. Theo uses they-them pronouns. We last spoke to Theo when they were performing in a La Mama Theatre production last year. They join us this morning to share their views on a different topic, the election, and what matters to them as a young trans person growing up in Australia. Good morning, Theo. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. 
very welcome. It's uh, always great to talk with you. Now, Theo, you started your activism in 2018 and you volunteered with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition School Strike for Climate, Melbourne Youth for Refugees and now the Greens. Can you tell us what motivated you to stand up for what you believe in? Um, I think what motivated me was it made me so furious that our leaders that, you know, I, mean, I didn't personally, but I was so shocked when I was a little 13-year-old, year seven, learning, no, your leaders aren't actually always going to align with what you're voting for them. They won't actually do what you're asking them and meet the policies they're going to claim to meet. And that's when I realised I needed to take action into my own hands and actually make some change in the Australian government. Well, you're certainly um, keeping yourself very busy uh, with lots of activism. Now, can you tell us, as a 16-year-old, what are the issues that are most important to you? Um, you're living in Australia, you're growing up, you're thinking about your future. What are the important things for you? Um, as a 16-year-old, definitely climate change. I think that is the number one priority on every 16-year-old's list right now, other than, of course, VCE. Um, definitely transgender issues, religious issues, religious freedom is kind of a very convoluted, complicated issue. Um, I mean, housing, like, I hate to, like, be a little nerd, but, like, I might own a house one day and it seems like it seems very complicated for the Liberal Party to accept young people's housing prices right now. Um, yeah, I think those are definitely issues I care about. Refugees as someone whose grandparents escaped from, as Jews from World War II, I definitely care about the refugee situation in Australia right now because it's disgusting. Mm. And we had a chat on the phone soon after the uh, second election debate when the Prime Minister and Mr Albanese were specifically asked about their policies for young people and the PM spoke mostly about jobs and Mr Albanese promoted his general housing policy. What was your reaction at that time and what would you have liked to have heard? Um, look, I was furious. If we look at their climate policies, which is what young people actually care about, Scott Morrison's Liberal climate policy is, what, 26 to 28% lower emissions before 2005 by 2035. That's embarrassing for Scott Morrison. And quite frankly, there's no science backing it. Clearly, he doesn't care about our futures. He only cares about the economy and his own perception of what actually matters to us. Anthony Albanese, his 46 to 48% target is better, but I don't know he cares about climate change that much because throughout his election campaign, he has glossed over it as if it's just another small topic that doesn't really matter till after the election. And I just find it so bizarre. So if the Greens had been part of the debate, what would you have heard them say to address young people's issues and climate change? That our goal is net zero by 2035 and that we are going to appoint an equality minister by the Greens, someone in Parliament that will represent the LGBTQIA plus people of Australia, which is what we need. So coming to that issue, you're a passionate advocate for trans rights and you also attend a religious school in Melbourne. Yes. 
Would you feel comfortable sharing some of your experience? Yeah, definitely. Um, I go to the King David School in Melbourne. It's a progressive Jewish school. I have been really lucky in how my school's been really receptive. I mean, I was one of the first people to come out as transgender, so a lot of my experience was kind of having lots of conversations with them about where I would go to the bathroom, where I would sleep on school camp. And that was was really a lot of emotional labour on me that I had to go through. But I am, on another note, really glad I went through it because it created this kind of backing for me where I was able to use it for my other activism. And so, yeah, I call my experience on a whole positive, except obviously there are some teachers that don't get my pronouns right and so on, and that's really frustrating and like in our classes when I was younger about Judaism and religion it would be very on the gender binary of God created male and female and I think that really convoluted my brain but I overall have had a positive experience. And if you were running your own school or if you were asked by another religious school to recommend um, a policy what would be your recommendations and, and what can um, schools learn from the positive experience you've had at your school? Uh, yeah, definitely. That's a great question. Um, I would say put in a gender-neutral bathroom that is accessible. For instance, my experience was that teachers were using it and that was really frustrating. So put in an accessible bathroom. Ask kids where do they want to sleep on school camp, who do they feel most comfortable with, don't make the list for them. Don't tell them where they are and aren't allowed to sleep. Um, let them create groups and policies and such. For example, we, I and my friend run a Q&A collective at our school, which is the Queers and Allies Collective. Give the queer children at your school the space to make those spaces so that other queer kids in the school feel supported enough to come out themselves. Mm. And what about in terms of the religious content um, in the schools? Obviously, different religious schools will have different teachings depending on their um, religious leaning. How has that been for you? And are there changes that you would recommend in the way religion is taught and the yeah, way that's... the students are catered for within that? Yeah, that's really interesting. I've I've thought about that a lot, and I think it is really complicated, and I wish it had been less complicated for me as a child. I think when we're studying a text like the Torah, it feels odd that for the rest of the text, we take the words as symbols with different meanings, yet when it comes to he created the male and female in Genesis, we take that as a straightforward fact, sure sentence. So I think what we should do instead, which is what my religion class did this year, is we study it in more of a what does this actual mean in a symbolic way. Let's look at the Hebrew text rather than just studying the English, which doesn't always align with the Hebrew. I think also providing queer text analysis would be amazing. I wish I had that as a child. I think there are so many outlets. It's not just, oh, sorry, I know this part of the Torah is going to be hard for you to study, but you just got to get through it. You actually don't just got to get through it. There are other ways you can study the text 
that are queer friendly. Mm. Um, and how worried are you about the religious discrimination bill returning to the Senate after the election? I'm deeply worried. I mean, I'm hoping and praying the Liberals don't get in. But if they do, I, I'm trying to block it out of my brain. But it is so scary. And that will not only be so worrying for the transgender kids, tr- brave transgender religious kids that are out there and non-religious kids, it will set a precedent for other closeted transgender kids that, no, it is not safe to come out in the Australian landscape, how does that make sense? That is not a safe Australia. It's also the impact on on teachers as well. Um, Exactly. We want our teachers to feel comfortable where they work and then they can lead and create that safe place for their students. So if teachers are put at risk through um, the implications of that act, that is another layer of um, problems. Yeah, I can't agree more. Mm. So if uh, in the future you yourself had children, would you choose to send them to a religious school or would you, or a single-sex school, uh, or would you choose a co-ed school of non-religious denomination? Because it, it's an interesting um, situation parents find themselves in where often they might be choosing a school before their their child you know has developed their own identity and so you're kind of making decisions for them mm, that's a great question i i'm still actually figuring out if i want children especially considering how expensive scott morrison is making my future um in terms of where i would send them i definitely would never send my kids personally to a same single sex school because i think that would just complicate if they chose to come out as transgender or non-binary. I think that would make their experience so much more complicated. I honestly, I'd have to check where my savings are at if I'm sending them to a religious school. Um, I think, yeah, I would love for them to have a Jewish education, whether it's them attending some kind of synagogue Sunday school or going to a religious school but yeah I do think them having a Jewish education would be important to me and one that reflects the whole Jewish community with queer readings and different types of readings that reflect different communities in the vast Jewish community. Thank you so much for sharing your vision of uh, what education could look like and uh, I hope you stand as an inspiration to our, our leaders and, and school leaders uh, when they're making their decisions and policies. Thanks very much for talking to us this morning. I should let you get off to school. What's your first class this morning? Um, my first class this morning is history. So Excellent. Well, <laughs> thank, thank you, you so very much. much. Thanks so much for having me. That was Theo Boltman talking as a young trans person and giving his perspective of the federal election on Saturday and the issues that matter to them. For more information on the Religious Discrimination Bill and how to step up pressure on your local MP, head to the Equality Australia website, equalityaustralia.org.au, and then go to the What We're Working On tab, Religious Discrimination Bill. There's also a great fact sheet on the website with updated information on the bill in the resources section. So I encourage you to check that out.
Excellent. We might head to a song now, I think. Yeah, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Fiona Spitskowski about her new play, The View From Up Here. Uh, but in the meantime, let's have a listen to The Cruel Sea. This is, this is not the way home.
Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member, become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 9419 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station so it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Australia is a crime scene. It's unfinished business, this crime. People don't understand that it was a military exercise. It was military in the first fleet. It was Captain James Cook. It was Captain Arthur Phillip. Right through the history of Australia, it's a military exercise. Our people have suffered greatly because the white man is not prepared to act honourably and legally still the case in this country today. This is 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 8.55am. I'm Ella. 
And now we're going to be hearing about a new production from playwright Fiona Spitzkowski, uh, The V from Up Here, which is a play which deals with uh, themes of family and survival as it follows the story of one family in particular as they return to their farm following the catastrophic fire season. Uh, The play opens at the Theatre Works tomorrow night. I'm very excited to see it. Uh, In the meantime, we're going to hear from the writer Fiona. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Fiona. Oh, we might have to take a short break. We'll be back with you. Sorry. Oh, there we are. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) No problem. How are you doing this morning, Fiona? Yeah, good. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, Now, can you tell us a bit about your um, play, The View From Up Here? Can you tell us about how it came about? Absolutely. Um, It's I mean, it's been a bit of a long journey. Um, I actually started writing it way back in 2015. Um, I was on an artistic retreat up at Bulls Creek and just started writing about the landscape that I was seeing, um, which is absolutely stunning up there. And over the years, it's come, like, the play started as a description of that landscape and then these characters started to inhabit it. Um, So it became about... Uh, this family who has this relationship with the land that they're um, occupying um, and basically how that relationship is also echoed in their relationship with each other um, as they face sort of catastrophic climate change. (laughs) Very cheery stuff. Yeah, yep, heavy stuff. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, as you said, I saw when I was reading about the play, one um, description said five years in the making, another said seven years in the making, so it sounded (laughs) like quite an ordeal for you. Um, Obviously a lot's gone on in that time. We've gone through the pandemic and some pretty horrific bushfires. Um, Did those experiences influence the production at all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's definitely been quite a talking point, um, the length of time it's taken. I think that, (laughs) you know, a lot of of writers don't really talk about how long these things take because it it can take a lot, a long time to to draft something and then to find a director, to find a theatre company willing to put it up. So, you know, I'd like to think I'm not alone in taking that much time to develop a work. Um, But certainly the pandemic delayed it for two years. Um, but in some ways, you know, I'm quite grateful for that time because it has changed the script. Um, the Black Saturday bushfires definitely had an impact on, you know, the scale of the disaster that's faced in the play, the language that's being used, the imagery, because that's become so much more a part of our reality. Um, so, yeah, it's been interesting to see how the changes that have happened in our real world have um, impacted the world of the play. Amazing. And yeah, I think um, a lot of good things take time and um, the more experiences you have to draw on, the richer it's going to be. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Fingers crossed. I'll find out tomorrow. I'm excited. (laughs) And um, as you said, the um, uh, show does deal with a lot of big, heavy themes like climate change and crisis. Um, It sounds like it also deals with um, some more hopeful themes like hope and um, resilience and survival. Uh, can you talk a bit about the importance of having these messages of hope in your play? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when I started uh, writing it, and this, again, <laughs> I'm grateful for the time because I've been able to develop as a writer as well. I think it was a lot darker when it first started. Um, and then, you know, working with Liv Satchel, who's the dramaturg, and Jules 
um, Dibley Hall, who's the director, they really, like, invited a bit more um, unpacking of, you know, what happens when the anger, when the sadness sort of subsides, what are you left with and what do you have to go on with? And I think that's where we found a lot of the... Yeah, that's where the hope resides, I think, because you can't continually be angry and frustrated and, and mournful forever, that once that's sort of cleared, there is something left. Um, and I think that's, that's really settled the play into something quite gentle and beautiful, I hope, again. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Hopefully a gentler experience for the audiences too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and um, can you tell us about some of the main characters in the play? So I believe we're following uh, Eva and Lily. Are these two sisters? Or? Yeah, so it's a bit of a, a prodigal daughter story with the two sisters returning to the family home after this bushfire season. Um, the mother, actually, Maggie, who's the mum, hasn't told them that the other one is coming and we kind of get the sense that there's been a lot of a lot of tension and hurt between them over the years. So, you know, as well as sort of grappling with the the tragedy of what's occurred at their family home, their childhood home, they're also grappling with what's occurred between them over the years and sort of how to rebuild both at the same time. And to sort of balance it all out, we've also got the character of John, who's along for the ride, um, which has been a really wonderful experience developing the character of John. At first, I wasn't quite sure why he was there but um john mark desangano who's the wonderful actor playing john um has really brought a lot of like humor a lot of light to the character so he's really um brought that levity as well amazing yeah it sounds like it's as much a story about family as it is about um uh, the environment or disaster absolutely um, and yeah, I thought that was interesting. I think um, in the past, when it comes to climate change or environmental disaster, it's um, the avenues we hear about it. It's really science-based and fact-based. But I think in the last few years, in particular, uh, we're seeing a lot more stories and um, uh, collaborating ideas, um, like with family. Um, and I think that do you th- tell me if you agree, but it. Um, uh, can make the issue more tangible. I think climate change is so big, people can feel a bit helpless. So I guess going back to that message of hope, do you think it is helpful um, for people finding hope and understanding these situations to uh, hear about it in a more creative way? Yeah, I think so. And I think it just um, it allows you to sort of feel the feelings that you're going to have when you're sort of faced with you know the concept of global catastrophe like I think that a space like theatre which is a very cathartic a very in the moment space is going to provide you know a a communal experience where we can all recognise that there's going to be anger there's going to be sadness but there is going to be something after that as well and I think it really grounds it in a human experience rather than like all these numbers that sort of compound a sense of I guess, chaos and, and fear and lack of understanding. So by, yeah, by grounding it in something really human, I think it gives us a bit more space to to sit with those feelings and then move forward into something else, which I hope will, yeah, generate a bit of action and a bit of thinking about what we can do to prevent any more um, catastrophes from happening. Yeah, Absolutely. I think it's a lot more motivating when we can kind of grasp the concept and our, um, yeah, ability to make a difference. Yeah. Um, and um, sustainability and uh, climate isn't just 
part of the theme. It's also part of your practices, right, in this performance. Could you tell us a bit about some of your uh, practices you've introduced from uh, Sustainable Theatres Australia? Yeah, absolutely. We have been so lucky that both the director, dramaturg, and our sustainability consultant, Christian Taylor, are part of uh, Sustainable Theatres Australia. And basically, they've been using this production as a sort of um, test run for a lot of the sustainability practices and principles that they're hoping theatres will start to adopt. Um, so we've been doing things like like really simple things, like tracking how everyone travels to and from rehearsal. But also one of the things that I found most interesting is actually tracking the lifespan of all the products that we're using. So borrowing products, uh, like set costume products from other companies, but also making sure they've got somewhere else to go after we use them. And in that way, really ensuring that, you know, we're not using any single-use items or minimising our use of single-use items. Um and just being aware of the lifespan of the product. You don't want to be ordering things from overseas that has a larger carbon footprint. Um, and, yeah, making sure that things have at home once we're finished with them. So it's been a really interesting process also to be more aware of the sort of, um, yeah, where we're sourcing things from and, and the bigger picture, I guess, how theatre as an industry fits into the global economy and, and what sort of carbon footprint we have, really. It's been really eye-opening, definitely. Yeah, and yeah, nice to be working with an organisation that can break down all those steps. I imagine it can be pretty, um, yeah, overwhelming when you're trying to uh, track everything and measure everything to, yeah, have some guidance on it. Absolutely, but Sustainable Theatres Australia is making all of this information completely accessible on public. You can, uh, they've got um, information packs already on their website that people can download and use to sort of guide their own processes. And once the production is is wrapped, we're going to be um, we. I'm probably not going to be. <laughs> they're going to be um, writing up a report, which will hopefully help a lot of other theatre companies put um, similar measures in place. Ah, oh, cool. And yeah, it sounds. Um... Uh, really interesting that, yeah, all these pieces are going to then have another life after the view from up here. Um, we'll have to see um, where the set pieces go next. <laughs> yeah, we'll be able to sort of trace certain pieces of furniture or costumes across the independent theatre scene in Melbourne, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> All right, uh, Fiona, we're just about out of time. So before you leave us, um, can you give us the plug? How can listeners get along and see the view from up here? So the view from up here is running from, well, tonight we preview until the 28th. It's at Theatre Works, which is accessible via tram if you want to be there, get there sustainably. Um, and we'd love to have you. There are also $20, 20 $20 tickets each night um, to make the show more accessible. Thank you to Theatre Works for having that um, program running. Ah, bargain. All yep. right. <laughs> well, I'll be there tomorrow night. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. That was playwright Fiona Spitzkowski uh, talking to us about her new performance, The View from Up Here, which opens at the Theatre Works tomorrow evening. Uh, you're listening to 3CR Breakfast. We'll be back with you shortly. Have you heard it on the news About this fascist growth thing Even with racist views Spreading all across the land they're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. 
Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash out of the pan.
when you think you've seen it all, welcome to the black tie. listening to 3CR Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. And now we're going to take a listen to the Lost in Science team. Uh, so last week on the show, Chris Lassig spoke with animal reproductive biologist Jared McKenna about the newly funded research that plans to bring the Tasmanian tiger back from extinction and to the wilds of Tasmania. So over to you, Chris. All right, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris and I have with me on the line Jared McKenna, who is a reproductive biologist and the person to talk to about all things to do with, I guess, I guess assisted reproduction and animal conservation and very appropriate to the question of bringing thylacines back from extinction. Jared, thank you for joining us once again on Lost in Science. Not a problem. Thanks for having me again. Tell us, what is this project about and how do you bring an extinct creature like the thylacine or Tasmanian tiger back to life? Big questions and even bigger project. It's one that you you can't not think of Jurassic Park. Um, It really pulls on the sort of nostalgia strings, doesn't it? Trying to bring back something from extinction. We've all, all seen Jurassic Park. We all love it and we all like the idea of bringing back something that we that we did love at a point, even if it's even if it was a dinosaur, if it, even if it is um, feasible or not, we all love the idea of it. It's a very steeped in our sort of pop culture, but it's a very, very, very tricky thing to do scientifically. So Jurassic Park did get a couple of things right. They got a couple of things wrong. Besides the whole dinosaurs went a little bit um, crazy at the end, they got most of the science right. And most of that science is exactly what we're going to be doing um, to try and bring back thylacine. So... The way that they plan to do this, they've got a whole bunch of um, steps that they need to go through. And the first is to actually get thylacine DNA. They've got to get Tassie tiger DNA to know what a Tassie tiger looks like genetically. And that was the first hurdle, but um, thankfully they've already overcome that. So they've had a lot of preserved specimens over the years from zoos and um, conservation organizations that they've been able to get lots of tissue from. So thankfully we've got essentially their whole genome sequence, which is a big tick and a a big step forward already. The next step is that they had to sequence the DNA of a very similar species. So in um, this case for the Tassie tiger, it was the uh, a numbat or a fat-tailed dunnart, and they've done that as well. So why did they do that? Well, they need to compare the DNA that they've got from the thylacine against a similar species to see how they could sort of tweak it to make um, a thylacine again. So while we do have the DNA from the dead animals, we do need some fresh DNA. So you can use the old DNA as a template and then compare that to a similar species and then try and fill in the gaps to make the new species. So those are the first two steps that they've sort of done and there's a couple more to go yet. Okay, so it's not directly just like cloning a creature from, say, getting a cell from an extinct, like a dead Tasmanian tiger and cloning that or even just inserting its DNA hole into an embryo of another species it's it's more complicated than that is it it's a little bit more complicated than that because it really depends how long the animals uh, or the cells have been dead for or frozen for 
So we actually can and, and have done it with frozen mice tissue. They've, they've frozen some mouse tissue for about 20 years or 15 years, I think it was, and cloned that mouse and it worked um, pretty well. But that was because that DNA was preserved correctly. And the problem with a lot of the animals that we want to bring back from extinction, we didn't exactly plan um, very well. So that DNA has fragmented and it's damaged and it's very, very hard to sort of pick up the pieces and put it all together into another cell. So if you imagine the DNA is a book and then you, that book has gone through the shredder and you're trying to assemble that book again, all the pieces are there, but it's very, very, very difficult to put it back together unless you know exactly the, the position of each of those little fragments. Does this mean what you end up with is not an exact copy of a thylacine because you have kind of cobbled it together out of the remnant bits plus the DNA of a related species? Pretty much, yeah. That's why we're sort of going with a similar species to sort of fill in the gaps on what we think a thylacine DNA would look like. So if we were to go with that... Um, take the thylacine DNA, put it into a, into another cell, and then, then let that cell grow into a thylacine, that would be a clone. This is almost a clone. We're, we're creating what we think is a thylacine, and that's, uh, and that's the subjectivity already because it's what we think it is. It, it probably will never be what it exactly was. Whether that's good, whether that's a bad thing, it, you know, time will tell. Once you've got that, though, the DNA, and presumably you have you know, use your numpat or fat tail dunner. Do you put it back into the dunner to gestate and bring it to birth, I guess? Uh, yeah, so so the next step after that is, so yeah, we've got the DNA in, in, in the cell and now we've got the thylacine embryo. Yeah, what do we do with it? Because there's no thylacine mother to put it back into and then gestate and hold that pregnancy. So we go again to a similar species. So that would most likely be a Tassie devil. It could be a numbat, could be a fat tail dunnart. Probably the Tassie devil, just because of size, it's a little bit bigger. But the beautiful thing about marsupials is that size may not be that big of an issue because they actually give birth to very, very underdeveloped young anyway. So there would really be only a couple of days, a couple of weeks before the animal would actually give birth. So it might not be such a big issue. But yes, picking which species to be the uh, surrogate mother is, is still up for debate, I think. Okay, so it does sound like it's it's fairly well thought out, though. What do you see as the main challenges with getting this to work? Well, science and, and it's all its wonder is incredibly difficult and incredibly specific, especially with genetics. So, for example, if we have a technique like IVF that's defined in humans, if we want to do that in gorillas, it could be very similar, but it will require some sort of tweaking. And a lot of the techniques that we're trying to define with thylacine are from scratch. So that is a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of research to sort of get those really fundamental techniques off the ground. And then once we've got those fundamental ones, then we need to get to the quite specific ones that are even more technical to sort of get off the ground. So there's quite a lot of technical hurdles still to go. So after we sort of make that thylacine DNA or what we think it would be, and then we put it into a cell, we need to make sure that that cell is actually going to live and grow and that DNA is going to be replicated correctly. Um, we need to make sure that those cells are able to actually be totipotent, which means you know they can make every other cell in the body. So there's a lot of technical hurdles still to go. And then that's not to mention if we do actually get a thylacine baby at the end of all of this, which would be tremendous for science, that's one. 
you know, what good is one? <laughs> yeah. It's um there's a lot of estimates out there on how many animals we need for a population to be viable and they vary between 500 to a couple of thousand. And that depends on the species. You know, if you if you look at a rabbit for example, um they breed extremely quickly, you know, they've got like litters of 12 or 10 or something like that, but also everybody eats them. So they reproduce very quickly, but then they also get eaten quite a lot. So they might need 500 animals initially, and then that might teeter off as animals start to eat them. Or if you look at animals that breed very inefficiently, so animals that give birth once a year, for example, you're going to need a lot more animals for that population to be reproductively fit, we say. So it's it's going to prevent inbreeding and um, sort of those negative effects that we see with small populations. So if we've got one, that's great, but we probably need about a thousand Okay. Uh, for it to be properly useful for the species. If we were to create another one, you know, if we're using the same donor source, then you're going to have the genetically the same seed. We need to have lots of different thylacine samples. Exactly, yeah. So we do have, you know, a handful of really good copies, which are founding a lot of this understanding about the DNA to begin with. You know, we need 500 or 1,000 animals, so... Do we artificially introduce some of that sort of natural variation that you would get in the wild? We probably can. You know, CRISPR is a very, very powerful technique now, and it's going to underpin a lot of this DNA work that the, that the researchers are doing. But then it sort of brings in the whole moral ethical side again. You know, what are we creating? Introducing good genes, and are we introducing bad genes? And is introducing a bad gene necessarily bad? We don't really know because that's what nature does sometimes. You know, bad genes make their way in and that's a natural thing. We can't edit only good genes in and it's a it's a very tricky one to sort of artificially manage. I guess, look, the big question obviously I want to ask is then, is this going to work? Yeah, I'd like to be optimistic because I'm very positive about how quickly science can move when it's well-funded and well-motivated and well-supported. So I'm optimistic that this could work, but like you said, it could take a long, long time to get where we want and to get enough animals and enough genetically diverse animals, because even if we do get to those thousand species for say, you know, we don't even know if they're going to be useful. And if we are to sort of, you know, pop them on a plane and drop them back at Tassie, um, we don't know if they're actually going to refill that niche that they did occupy. But yeah, you do have to question the time frame to actually get this ball rolling and get all of those animals made and in the wild again. You know, it could it could take decades. And is that time and effort and money better spent elsewhere? You know, it's sort of the question. You relate it back to climate change. You know, it's 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 well and good. You know, funding things like carbon capture, capturing all the carbon dioxide that we're producing, but it's not stopping us produced in the carbon dioxide and it's a similar debate you know we can de-extinct animals and put them back but if we put them back are they just going to go extinct again is it better to put all that time money and um, all those resources to preventing other animals from going extinct rather than bringing back one that's a big debate and it's sort of a big point in the uh <laughs> in the team no for bringing back uh, thylacine it's probably the biggest conflicting point and i think it's a very valid one and again hard decisions because if somebody is willing to fund it mm. then you can't really say no <laughs> if somebody yeah. has given you the money to do it then by all means do it 
but I would personally prefer that money to be spent elsewhere, stopping the other animals from going extinct instead. Clearly this one is a very headline-grabbing project, and yeah. people would love to see a high-profile extinct creature like the thylacine brought back. I mean, I was even thinking about what other sort of recent extinctions, I think one of the, some of the rhinoceros species or subspecies, and yeah. even they would not get as big headlines as the thylacine, I think. However, yeah. then you compare it to other endangered species in Australia, like um, the koalas, for instance, are currently going through their own crisis, and they are one of the most well-funded conservation efforts uh, in the country, and yet we're struggling to keep those from extinction. So it does make you wonder. If this yeah, is the best and approach. they're one of the most recognisable animals in the world, too. Mm. You know, people think of Australia, they think of kangaroos and koalas, and we can't even look after koalas. You know, what good are we doing here if we're just going to let them go extinct and then bring them back later on. These animals should mean a whole lot to our culture you know, and the identity of Australia, so we should stop them from going extinct in the first place. Well, uh, thanks very much, Jade. It'll be very interesting to see how this works out. Uh, yes, stay tuned. And that was animal reproductive biologist Jared McKenna speaking with Chris Lassick from Lost in Science about research that plans to bring the Tasmanian tiger back from extinction. And a big thank you to the Lost in Science team. Uh, you can hear Lost in Science on 3CR every Thursday at 8.30am. And that's Wednesday Breakfast for today. A big thank you to all our guests. Thanks to listeners for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back with you next week. In the meantime, stick around for Stick Together. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. 3CR, here to stay.